Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another exciting episode of That's Truth. It's good to be back in the studio after taking a break last week. And sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Dr. David Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, good evening, Nathan, and good evening to those who will be listening to the program this evening. Again, this is That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program on the radio station, on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. And we are going to start off tonight's episode... We, Lord willing, will get to the topic of demonology, get back to that topic, but we're going to start off with some questions that came in, Pastor, via text message from St. Kitts. It starts out, happy 45th anniversary to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Good night, Pastor Murphy. Please answer the following. Number one, can you please explain the Feast of Harvest in the Old Testament and what was done at the Feast of Harvest and the purpose of that feast? All right. Um, the Feast of Harvest, uh, you find that in Exodus chapter 23, verse 16. Uh, it is one of the three pilgrimage feasts that required every male Jew uh, to assemble at Jerusalem. Um, there are several passages of Scripture that deal with it. Uh, also, there's Exodus 34, 22, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 13, 15 to 21. You find it again in Numbers 28, 26 to 31, and Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 9 to 12. Uh, basically, it uh, is also called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, the same terms are synonymous with the Feast of Harvest. It actually occurred 50 days after the sheaf offering that was uh, had to do with the f- f- Feast of First Fruits. Um, there are several reasons, two reasons basically why it was used. First of all, there was a, a matter of Thanksgiving. All of these feasts relate some aspect of agriculture and also some had some spiritual meaning for example these three feasts uh, the Passover with the first one was connected with the barley harvest and it was a time when uh, Israel would assemble and thank God for the blessings of the barley harvest but it also recalled the exodus uh, so there's a, a dual combination of thanksgiving to God because of the harvest but also a reflection of the spiritual exodus uh, from Egypt Pentecost uh, celebrated the wheat harvest, and it was a time when the Jews remembered, according to the um, rabbinical calculations, when the law was given. Uh, so they connected Pentecost uh, with, with the law, the given law at Mount Sinai. And then the other one was the Feast of Tabernacle. This was a celebration of the Great Harvest Festival, but it also was an anniversary that reminded them of the wilderness wanderings. So all of these feasts, including the 
the Feast of uh, Harvest, or what is called the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost, um, had a matter of thanksgiving and also some religious element to it. But there's more to it than that, because all of these feasts also pointed to Christ. Uh, the, the Passover pointed to Christ who was the Lamb, that if his blood is applied, the protection of the death angel in the Exodus. The Feast of Pentecost, of course, remind you of the coming of the Holy Spirit uh, on the day of Pentecost. It occurred 50 days after the Passover. And then uh, the Jubilee uh, Tabernacle uh, uh, reminds us, of course, of the Millennial Kingdom when uh, Israel will once again, as it were, remind them of God dwelling among them during the wilderness journey. So each one of these feasts uh, had some particular uh, typological meaning that also pointed to Christ and pointed to his work. The The interesting thing about uh, the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Harvest is that during that feast, two loaves with leavened bread was presented to the Lord. Now you know that leaven was forbidden uh, in the other feasts, but in the day of Pentecost, uh, it was reminding us the church should be formed, but the church is not perfect. And you have both loaves, the Jews and the Gentiles, will be offered as unto the Lord. It all presaged that and pointed towards the, the founding of the church. So that's basically the, the reason behind uh, these feasts, uh, agricultural purpose of thanksgiving, but also a spiritual purpose of pointing to Christ and also pointing to some historical aspect in their life when God intervened miraculously and did a spiritual work on their behalf. Should we be celebrating these feasts today? Well, all of these feasts have been fulfilled in Christ. Uh, these were celebratory in terms of being part of the ceremonial law, uh, but we're no longer on the ceremonial law, so there's no need for the believer to celebrate these particular uh, events. I know there's some churches that have an, a calendar uh, and they have dates like they got the Pentecost. Uh, uh, the Catholics are well known for having all of the different types of feasts, etc., to mark those days. But there's no biblical basis for us to actually celebrate these particular days. Uh, there's no precedent for us to do it. Uh, some of the churches, like the Church of Yahweh, okay, uh, they celebrate all the Jewish feasts. If you came up with the Herbert W. Armstrong and the Biz uh, uh, British Israelism, you'll find that they also celebrate these uh, these days. And there are other movements today that are going back to the Jewish roots, that are trying to combine Christianity, as it were, with Judaism, and uh, once again celebrating these these feasts, but there's no biblical base for it. Uh, these things have been fulfilled. These are the shadow. Christ is the substance. Let's hold to the substance rather than go back to the shadows. For those who may choose to celebrate the feast, realizing that it may have been fulfilled already, uh, do you have any warnings, any advice that maybe to be careful that we don't get caught up? What in? I would say to Christians is if you don't have a biblical precedent for it in the New Testament, I think you should be very careful of instituting a practice that there's no biblical precedent for in terms of the New Testament. Um, but uh, again, I think your conscience should guide you in a matter like this, because I'm not saying that people who celebrate this, especially the Jewish churches, uh, some of them celebrate a lot of the Jewish feasts, not to, uh, in any way believing that they're meritorious, but as memorials of the Jewish past and their heritage. Uh, I, I don't have a problem with that, because I've been to a church where they 
do a lot of Jewish uh, activities within this, this setting itself. But I think we've got to be careful that we don't try to Judaize Christianity. Uh, let's keep Christ central and let nothing, uh, no practice or no feast or no celebration, rob him, rob him of his glory and displace him. And I think we need to be very careful as far as um, these kind of different feasts. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 7.39. We are here to answer your questions from a biblical worldview using Scripture. You can call and be put live on the air. The phone number is 1-268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782-1454. Or you can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and comment your question under the video feed, and it'll get aired on the program in a timely manner. Pastor, another question from St. Kitts. Where is the land of Goshen, and what is it about? Well, if if you're familiar with the book of Genesis and in connection with uh, the Israelites when they went into Egypt, when Joseph was there on the throne and because of a famine, the family was forced to go down into Egypt. You'll find that in um, Genesis chapter 46, Genesis chapter 47, we're told that they were brought into Egypt in the land of Goshen. This is an area situated in the, the Nile Delta, a few miles northeast of the city of On. And it is generally uh, believed that it uh, was the, in the region of east of the what is called the Bobastic branch of the Nile River. But if you read Genesis chapter 46, verse 28 and 29, you find that this is when the family came down and Joseph met his father in the area of Goshen. Pharaoh gave permission uh, for the Israelites to settle in Goshen according to Genesis chapter 47, verse 6. And the Israelites remained there for almost 400 years until they numbered almost 2 million. And then, of course, we know the story that when Israel began to expand and develop and the population began to grow, Pharaoh feared that the Jews, uh, the numbers of the Jews would exceed the Egyptians and they began uh, um, the process of putting them in bondage and um, committing infanticide, etc. But it was in Goshen where the Israelites came and the family of Joseph, and this is where they settled, and where the nation itself, it was in the wound of uh, Egypt that Israel developed before they moved from Egypt and went into Palestine. So to answer the question, it's a location in Egypt where the Israelites were allowed to settle under Pharaoh when Joseph was there ruling as the vice prime minister, as it were. That's the area where the Israelites uh, developed as a nation. Pastor, a question from a listener. Why is the Red Sea called the Red Sea, and what is the Red Sea? Well, the Red Sea is interesting that in the Hebrew word, the word is not Red Sea. Uh, in the Hebrew word, it's the Reed Sea. The, the, the actual word in the Hebrew word is Yam, Y-A-M, and it's called Yam Suf. Suf is sea, and Yam is reed. Uh, however, when it was translated into the Septuagint, Rather than translate it uh, as the Red Sea, they translate it as the Red Sea, and there's a reason for that. The reason for that is that the Greeks, um, uh, remember that the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the Greeks uh, named it the Red Sea because of the king that was living in that area. He lived in Edom. Now, you know Edom means red. 
yeah. and the Edomites were a red race made of red skin people so that is where uh, that name became associated with the, the Red Sea but the, the other opinions that have been offered um, there are those that also believe that in the where the Red Sea is currently uh, the western coast the mountain is made of a red limestone and when the sun shines through it reflects on the river on the on the thing as red and they believe that's where they also got the idea of, of the of the red sea um but basically those are the reasons uh, one other final reason that is offered is that sometimes during the year uh there's a presence called zoophytes which is a kind of a marine coral stone that turns it red and that's where they believe it's called the red sea but literally in the hebrew language it's the red sea and that was north uh, of the Nile Delta, where there were a lot of reeds. Uh, you, you know that Joseph, that uh, Moses, when he was born, was put in the reeds in that yeah. area, and that's 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 where the, the idea comes from. Um, there's no absolute certainty why it, it's called red, other than the fact that the Greeks are the ones that called it red, but in actual fact, the Hebrews call it the Red Sea. But it's a translation from one to the other that change it from Red Sea to Red Sea. Now, as you're talking about that difference of translation there, should that put any doubt in my mind as to whether I really have the true word of God? No, I don't think that's the, the issue. Um, you know, if I'm going to translate from one language into another, I have to find something that people can identify with. So, for example, how would you translate wine if there's no wine in the country? Mm-hmm. Right? What, what would you use in place of wine? You have to find something that's closest to that and use that in the translation. But uh, So, th- there are times when you... Uh, it's not as though you're trying to tangle with the word, but if people are going to have a, an analogy and a parallel, you have to find something that's quite equivalent. Because if it doesn't exist in a, in, a, in a part of the world where there's no wine, what are you going to use? You might have to dye the, the water red or something. And then how are you going to translate that? And people don't have a clue what wine is, right? That has been one of the great problems with translation, by the way. And that's why we have to be very, very careful that understand that no translation is inspired. And uh, every translation has... I don't want to use errors or mistakes, but Israel translation has weaknesses. No, there's no English translation that doesn't have a weakness. Even the R. King James, the, 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 the precise grammar. The American standard is more precise in its grammatical expression than it is in the King James. More, more, more um, literal than even the King James, right? The King James is polished. Uh, Elizabethan language, basically. Uh, but the New American said it's very raw, it's very, very literal translation. So it doesn't run as smooth, but it has sacrificed the smoothness in order to give you grammatical correction. So that's why you just can't abandon one translation because of the other. And I think that's what's happened over the years. And the other thing, Nathan, is that the King James, uh, the, the Koine Greek in which the Bible was, uh, New Testament was written, was the common language of the streets. It's not classical Greek. It's the language that they found on the dumps when they started looking at the receipts and the letters that were dumped. When you, you, you know, you've got your dump, you throw it in the dump. When they started, the archives started digging up. They found out that, wait a minute, this is not some unique language. This is the language of the ordinary man in the street. we got to bear that in mind. Every translation is designed to be in the vernacular of people so they understand. They shouldn't need to run to a dictionary or a concordance every time they have a problem. But uh, 
there are those who go to an extreme position that uh, only one Bible in the English language is inspired and uh, it's the only Bible God can use. My question to those people, a thousand years before the King James Version, what Bible were they using? And they were using the Geneva Bible. So I'm just trying to say that we've got to be very, very careful because we can find ourselves in a dilemma when we have to translate in the future and we don't understand. We who don't know the problems of translating we're not in a position to make judgments on these matters because these are people who are trying to put it in a way that people understand. And they may not have the specific word that is used in the Hebrew language, but they use an equivalent in that particular language. So it's a matter of equivalency that's necessary sometimes in translation. Another question. Were slaves bought and sold for weddings in the Bible? Well, I, I try to look up that, and I don't have any, uh, any kind of um, basis and I find that anything about slaves being sold at weddings. I never, I never read that, never heard that, and I've not seen it in any Bible dictionary, any Bible encyclopedia. So there's no biblical basis that you can find either in the Bible where uh, slaves are bought and sold at weddings. Weddings were times of to celebrate, a time of joy, but uh, so there's no basis for that. Uh, I don't know where that might have come from, but there's no basis for that whatsoever in Scripture. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 748. We're here to answer your questions. You can call and be put live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420. I'll give that number to you again. To to be put live on the air, 268-462-7420. To WhatsApp or text your question, send it to 1-268-782-1420. Five, four. Or you can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and comment your question under the video feed. Here's a question, Pastor. Did Abraham and Sarah buy Hagar as a slave? Well, if you read the account that's given to us in Genesis chapter 12 and following, you'll know that Hagar is the unfortunate byproduct of a man who is out of God's will who leaves the place where God told him to stay in Canaan, and because of the pressure of a famine, uh, he goes into Egypt, and uh, without even consulting God and asking God, uh, should I go into Egypt? He goes down to Egypt, and he must have stayed there a considerable length of time, because by the time he comes out of Egypt, he comes out with cattle, and silver and gold according to chapter 13, uh, verse 1 of Genesis chapter 1. And later we learn that Another thing he brought up with him, a woman called Hagar. She is called Sarah's handmaid, and she's called Sarah's servant. And the term that is used there is bondwoman. Uh, you'll find also in Galatians, the Apostle Paul refers to Hagar as the bondwoman. So somehow uh, she had to be some kind of a Egyptian slave that uh, Sarah and um, Abraham acquired. Now, it doesn't mean that they had to have bought her. Uh, she could have been given to him as a result uh, from Pharaoh because remember uh, Abraham had deceived Pharaoh uh, Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh was concerned uh, he has said that Sarah was his sister and Pharaoh made attempts to take Sarah as his uh, one of his concubines and uh, God began to warn Pharaoh that he would judge him if he touched Sarah and then he sent Abraham away 
but again, uh, it seems very clear that it wasn't immediate because we're told in chapter 13 after chapter 12 that Abraham had great cattle, silver, and gold, but he'd just gone down there out of a famine. So these things that he has got, gotten clearly must have come from, from uh, the prosperity in Egypt that was there. So it's possible that she was a slave, but again, it could have been a gift from Pharaoh. Uh, she could also purchase her as her maid. Remember that this was the social custom of the time, and was a normal uh, tradition at the time, and therefore she became Abraham's, um, Sarah's handmaid. The tragedy of this whole ep- episode, however, is that after waiting for 10 years for the promise to be fulfilled that she would have a son, um, Sarah begins to doubt because she's now in her 80s, and she takes uh, Hagar and gives Hagar to Abraham as his wife, that she may uh, have a child by proxy. And we find that, again, she's following the customs and norms of the time that if a, a, um, a wife could not have a child, she could take her servant and give her t- the servant to the husband, and the children, the children become the, uh, the husband's children. So this was just a cultural uh, norm that was there, and Sarah went into that practice. And of course, I have to say, it's a disaster. It's out of this that Ishmael came, and all the modern conflict we have today between the Arabs and the Jews stemmed from this one indiscretion of Abraham when he went down into Egypt, took this maid, came back, and listened to the wife of his, uh, the voice of his wife, and brought uh, into existence the Arabs who are now, uh, I mean, these are cousins fighting each other, you wouldn't believe it, but that's the byproduct of being out of God's will and making decisions without consulting God. But she apparently was certainly a slave, a servant that uh, was acquired in Egypt. Pastor, a listener from Matthews Road in Antigua would like to know, in the book of Amos, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, are the prophecies already fulfilled? And please elaborate a little bit on verse 6. That's Amos 1, 1 to 6. I'm going to read the verses. If I can answer the question, I will. Okay. Amos 1, 1 to 6 reads as follows. The words of Amos, who was among the herdsmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn, and the top of Carmel shall wither. Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. But I will send a fire into the house of Haziel, which shall devour the places, the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will break also the bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitation from the plain of Avian and him that holdeth the scepter from the house of Eden. And the people of Syria shall go into captivity unto Ker, saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. And the question again is, mm-hmm. will are the prophecies already fulfilled? 
I, I don't, I want to, uh, I would reserve responding to that immediately. I'll tell you why. I currently bought a book online called The Next Prophecies. And this is one of the prophecies that the guy is dealing with. And he is saying that what is going to happen to Damascus, Damascus will be finally destroyed. So he he has it as an element where it is something yet futuristic. Uh, I just read the book. I haven't really had the time to go into it, but it's interesting that he would raise this. I'm not too sure if he brought the same book I bought, <laughs> because this guy, um, I've never bought any books from this particular writer. I can't even tell you his name right now. As a matter of fact, he has a next book called uh, Future Prophecies, his next Future Prophecies. I bought that as well to follow the sequel. It only cost me 99 cents. That's why I bought it, to be honest with you, on, on, on Kindle. But I would like to, um, if the person don't mind, rather than give you a rush answer and then have to retract, let me uh, pursue this and do some ex- a little more extensive study on it and then respond to the person uh, next week. Alright, I made a note of it here. We'll jump into that and answer your question in depth next week at the start of the program. Time Across the Eastern Caribbean is 7.55. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. And on Tuesday nights for this program entitled That's Truth, we are also on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed. You can not only see behind the scenes in the studio, but you can send your questions that way. If you have a question, you can call and be put live on the air, one 268 462-7420. If you'd rather not speak live on the air, but you still have a question, we would love for you to WhatsApp or text it to us. You can send it to 1-268-782-1454. Pastor, that's all the questions I have in front of me right now. So we'll jump back to the topic of demonology, which we have discussed off and on for a number of weeks now. And I know last week, when we came to the end of the program, uh, you were discussing the question about how are demons described and what names are given to them in Scripture. We're trying to uh, get a grasp on the biblical teaching on this matter, and we thought it was proper to, first of all, trace it in the Old Testament and then see what uh, how what the New Testament says about it. So I think we began by looking at different New Testament titles that are used to describe uh, demonic powers. Um, we mentioned Psalm 78 verse 49 where they're called angels of evil in, in that particular passage. I think you might have read that. But that talks about their character and the fact that they are messengers of the evil one. Of course, Satan is the head of the demonic powers and he heads up uh, this hierarchy of, of fallen angels uh, so that's one of the names that's given in the book of Psalm chapter 78 verse 49 they're called uh, angels of evil uh, another name that is used it, you'll find that in uh, Genesis chapter 6 verse 2 to 4 uh, where the term is used the sons of God uh, that went into the daughters of, of, of men and as a result of that, there was a byproduct called the Nephilims, the fallen ones. That's what the word really means. So those were demons. Of course. Uh, the, the word Son of God, uh, if you trace it in the Old Testament, if you look in Job 1.6, Job 2.1, and Job 38.7, it refers to the angelic beings. And this has to do with fallen angelic beings. That's why the term Son of God is used. So there was a 
uh, cross fertilization between these fallen ones and uh, the sons of the daughters of women, and that's why the Bible says a, a new a new breed called the Nephilims. Uh, I think the King James got giants, but the word is not giants. The word is gigantes in the um, Latin, but in the in the uh, in the actual word, the word has to do with fallen ones, Nephilims, fallen ones. But when we have a chat, we'll deal with that later because we can look at Jude and look at uh, Peter, and both Jude and Peter refers to these fallen ones who uh, did not maintain this estate where God, the order in which God had placed them, but went after strange flesh. Uh, we'll talk about that. And that is where the Nephilims became um, a, a, a crossbreed, as it were, between the women and between these fallen angelic beings. Uh, Nathan, you may not be familiar with this, but if you are following, read anything about Bible demonology, you, you heard about incubus and succubus. Yes. Right? And those are terms that are used for female and males, uh, demonic spirits. And there are people who are in, who have been involved in um, demonism who will tell you that there are times when these evil spirits, they are very, very uh, morally evil and they actually interfere with people uh, in a sexual way. Uh, that's a reality. That's not something if you you um I, I i know that personally from a situation uh but that is a reality and this this begins to explain why um that event occurred in genesis chapter six that explains also why the lord destroyed humanity and started over fresh again with Noah's son because the whole goal was to contaminate humanity because the Messiah is coming through the, 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 the uh, coming through the uh, humanity, and then if you can if you can somehow pollute the seed of the human race, it means the Messiah could not come, and it is believed that as a result of this cohabitation and this producing of this group called the Nephilims, that. Um, that this led eventually to the Lord saying, i got to destroy the entire world and start over again because the Messiah has to come to the seed of Adam, not a contaminated seed. So it's believed that's what had happened. But I think you'll find in Peter, when we study Peter and Jude, that he explains that these angelic beings, fallen angelic beings, demonic spirits, that uh, cross the border in terms of in intersecting with human beings, that they are now reserved in a place called Tartarus, where they are confined until the Day of Judgment. Uh, they were so offensive to God that they did what they did, that they are no longer free. There are certain demons that are free today to interfere, but these ones are totally confined, Jude tells us and Peter tells us, because it was such an offense against God's uh, what God has set up. So why does God not just confine all demons? Well, I think that it's part of the testing of the moral being of hum humanity. Uh, we are being tested, whether we like it or not. And, uh, and that goes back to why he didn't destroy Satan as well. Why did he create a perfect human being, but then why not destroy Satan, why allow the testing? I think part of that is testing the moral character of people. But I also think, to be very honest, I can't prove this scripturally, but I think that humanity is somehow wrapped up in the complete destruction of Satan in a just and a legal way. Okay. I really think that we are wrapped up somehow in that whole process. Um, remember that God is holy and God is righteous, but God has other beings that he has created called angels 
myriads of angels that are countless. And whatever God does, he also has to be seen righteous and not just merely vindictive. And I think the, the whole uh, process of dealing with Satan and his, his forces, humanity is playing a major role in that. So as the uh, angelic beings look at this combat going on, they'll see the justice of God in dealing with Satan because of the way he's dealt with humanity. I think that I think that's how it's wrapped up. I can't put it in words that I can find biblically, but I do think that we are part of that process by which God would deal finally with evil and we are part of that part of the instruments that God will use so that he's seen just and righteous. I don't want to uh, distract you from your your mm-hmm. goal there, but one uh, two questions to make sure we're on the same sure. page here. Were you saying that a demon can have sex with a person? Uh, I know I've heard people say that they had a, a horrible dream or whatever, mm-hmm. and they woke up and someone had told them that a demon had had sex with them. Well, I, I can tell you this, and I speak here guardedly, okay, mm-hmm. very guardedly, because uh, I know of cases personally mm-hmm. where persons were interfered in that area. Okay. By 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 evil spirits, no question about that at all, right? And this is not hearsay. This is actually what I know that I was told by people who've had this experience. So it actually happens, and uh, it it should not happen, right? But uh, certainly in the case of the the Genesis chapter six, uh, people say it refer to the Sephites, the godly Sephites, and the Canaanites. Uh, and uh, and that the Sephites went into the Canaanites, and as a result, but again, you, that is to my mind twisting the interpretation of the Bible. Let the Bible speak for itself. It's, they're called the sons of God. Trace the word "sons of God" in the Old Testament, and you'll see that it refers to the angelic beings. But these are fallen angelic beings, and now these are reserved in judgment because they overstepped their boundaries, and God has confined them in Tartarus. One other question. In relation to these uh, sons of God that came down and had uh, relations with these daughters of men, I've heard uh, even believers say that uh, this is where there's a basis for Zeus and Greek mythology and yeah. gods. What, it, what's your biblical yeah, I think view? that is where, it, th- behind all the mythology, whether Greek or the Roman mythology, there's a core of truth that has been distorted and twisted. Okay. Right? And I think that's where you get the ideas of the titans coming from. They mm-hmm. were the fallen ones, the great God, great um, um, half man and half God, basically. In, 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 you read that in Greek mythology and, and uh, Roman mythology. So that probably ties back to this time in yeah, history. Yeah. It's just like you, you check every single religion, Nathan. All religions basically uh, have core truth that have been twisted and distorted. Even the truth about God has been twisted and distorted. There was a core truth about salvation, a core truth about the need for blood. That's why in every religion almost there's some kind of blood that is shed to bring about atonement. Clearly there's some core truth that man has offended God and man needs to reconcile to God and man needs to do something to do that. Every religion basically has some core truth that has been distorted because there was a commonality of knowledge at one time and I think this occurred before they were scattered and the, the, the mankind was scattered, but they carried that core truth to different parts of the world, and then that truth became twisted and distorted, and that's where mythologies come. But there's some core truth behind a lot of this mythology. The time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.06. <clears throat> talking about demonology. 
But if you have a question, you can call in at 1-268-462-7420, or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. The other thing I would like to say, Nathan and Jack here, that's why, uh, again, because they are so, demons are so um, morally evil and wicked. That's why they try as well to possess humanity. They want a body to be able to use the human body uh, because they're spirits, but they want the experience of the human body. And that's part, that's why you find that they're always trying to possess and take over a human being. Uh, so it's part of their evil nature. So you were talking about some of the names from the New Testament, uh, different Old titles, Testament, Old yeah. Testament. So we talked about the matter that uh, the first one we talked about was the angel of evil, angel of evil in uh, Psalm seventy-eight, verse forty-nine, and then in Genesis chapter two, verse two to four, about the sons of God, and then in Psalms uh, one hundred six, verse thirty-seven, and Deuteronomy chapter thirty-one, verse seventeen. Another term is used in the Hebrew language. The word is sedem, s e d i m. And it means to rule, but those are that term refers to. Can you read that passage for me? Um, Psalm one hundred six yeah, thirty seven. Uh, thirty seven. Yea, they sacrifice their sons and their daughters unto devils. Yeah, see the word devils. That's the yeah. word there. Demons. As the word sedem, and that word really means to to rule or to be lord, and that gives you the idea. The whole idea of demons is to overpower and control, to lord over your life. But that particular term is another uh, Old Testament term for demons. Okay. The the other one is the word serim, s e i r i m serim, and that is found in several passages of scripture. It's found in Deuteronomy seventeen seven. It's found in Second Chronicles eleven. 15 and Isaiah 13 21 Isaiah 34 14 and that particular term um, is used for a goat uh, it's interesting by the way that those people that do satanic worship that the symbol of satanic worship is what kind of head the goat head because this is a demonic spirit that appeared in the form of a goat. And you come to Revelations, you're going to find that this, the demonic spirit appear in the form of frogs. They assume different animal shapes. But in this one, this is a demonic spirit that assumed the shape of a, a goat. And however you look at uh, satanic worship, the goat is always prominent. I would like to say something, but it might, it might be... Uh, I've had one experience... Uh, and I don't want to say too much about that because it can actually lead to um, sharing information I probably should not share, shall withhold that. But I will say to you that I, it really is a reality. Uh, I've seen it that created terror in me so much that I really wanted to run. Uh, but I've actually seen. So this is that's surprising that this particular um, word, the serum, the, the goat, is used there uh, for demonic powers as well. Pastor, we have a caller from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Good evening, Good evening, sir. How are you? I am doing fine. How are you doing? Good hearing your voice again. Thank you. How can I help you tonight? Can a real Christian cope under the blood of Jesus Christ? What's that? Can a real Christian Cover under the blood is the anointing on it. Can demon, can demon spirit approach them? Can the demon do what? 
Um, you know, there's a lot of debate about that, the extent of um, a person being demonized. The fact is that a person can get away from God, and uh, the Lord can withhold his protection as a means of dealing with that individual. Uh, missionaries uh, who worked in the mission field uh, for years have uh, said, and I can just tell you their reports, that they've had situations where people have come to faith in Jesus Christ out of pagan countries, gone on with the Lord for many, many years, and then got sidetracked, and then came under demonic power. Didn't mean that they were possessed, but came under demonic oppression and had to be delivered. So from the missionary experience, uh, it would seem to indicate that even though a Christian can be under the, the blood of Christ, uh, he can still come under the, the power of demonic uh, influence, demonic control. Let me just point out something to you. Our spirits are redeemed, but our body is not fully redeemed as yet. We still have the carnal nature. We've got to bear that in mind when you're dealing with this whole matter. The, the demons can't touch our spirit. But certainly, the, the fleshly part of us, which is the, the carnal nature, so it still could have the possibility. The, the Holy Spirit dwells in the realm of the spirit. So it's a possibility that uh, we can come under the influence of demonic powers if our bodies are being misused and we are not surrendered our bodies to the Lord. We can get away into certain forms of sin that we can actually come under the control of demonic powers in the air of our body. So I think that we can set up a... Paul talked about having a foothold. Uh, in a person's life and he warns about that don't let Satan set up a foothold in your life and I think that uh, people who play with the flesh especially when it comes to sexual immorality they're really setting up themselves for the devil to set up a foothold in their life so that that area of their life becomes under control I, you know I, I, I've never I have a problem as a pastor and as a Christian because I got saved and I have never been involved a lot of and when I got saved, I was a virgin, to be very honest with you. I, I never had <laughs> had any relation with any woman, so it's very other than my wife. Never had a relation with any woman other than my wife. So it's hard for me as a Christian. Uh, and by the way, that only happened because I got saved. I yeah. want to be very honest with you. If I didn't get saved, I'd be a, a, a little demon myself. <laughs> but because I got saved, the Lord put breaks on my life, and I was able to be held back and restrained from going in that direction. So it's very difficult for me, knowing what Christ has done in my life when I got saved, to see people who are believers and don't have any victory in this area of their lives. Um, that shocks me because if Christ could give me victory in that area of my life, I'm puzzled that people who make profession of Jesus Christ uh, still fall victim to these kind of situations, but they're Christians who are involved in all kinds of immorality. And that's because the enemy has set up a foothold in their life. So I think it can happen. But again, let me repeat. Our body is not fully redeemed. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that the day is coming when the, the whole creation will redeem, including our human nature, including our body. But we still have that carnal, sinful nature in ourselves. And that's where Satan has uh, the possibility of gaining a foothold in the fleshly part of our lives. So I do think that uh, believers, even though they're redeemed and come to Jesus Christ and trust Him, when they get away from Him and go into a slay and get involved in all kinds of immorality, I do believe that their lives become dominated by satanic powers, and that's why they're involved in such sexual acts, etc., etc. I think that can happen. Okay, and then let me ask you one more question. Sure. Can, I mean, when the Bible talks about in Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, about obedient to them that are not Jews and, and that are called Jews. Uh -huh. 
that becomes synagogue of Satan or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does the, the what does that mean? No, but you got to remember that Revelation is uh, has to do with the tribulation period. It has nothing to do with the church. The church is raptured. But in that particular passage, it's dealing with the speaking to the, the churches, uh, the seven churches uh, there in, in, in that part of the, the uh, Asia Minor. But he's talking about false Jews, people within the, 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 the first century church that were claiming to be the true followers of Christ, but yet they brought in false doctrine. Uh, they were Jews in the sense that they were natural Jews. They were born Jews. You know, it's the same problem Paul had throughout the book of Galatians and also in the, in the place of Corinth where you had these Judaizers that were trying to bring back legalism into the church. So this has to do with uh, people in the church, the first century church, claiming to be true, authentic Jews. And they are Jews in a physical sense that they seed of Abraham. But they are false in the sense that they're not the spiritual Jews. Because Paul points out also in Romans, not every Jew that claims himself as a Jew is a Jew indeed. But uh, a Jew who follows the thoughts of Abraham, a, a poor, who exercised faith in Jesus Christ, he is a Jew indeed. So you're dealing with people who are natural descendants of Abraham, but hold a false doctrine and claiming to belong to the Lord. That's what he's dealing with in the book of Revelation. Because, because I'm talking to a guy and I it's a that he, 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 he's one Adventist. Uh-huh. And he said that there is nothing like, like Jews. We we are Jews. Uh-huh. See, as long as you accept Christ, I tell you, I tell you, you are Jews. Yeah. They, I tell you, what about Gentiles? You see, there are nothing like Gentiles. We are outcasts yeah. like dogs. We are nothing. Yeah, nothing. Yeah, well, so the, yeah. Let me respond to you. The 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 Seventh Day Adventists have uh, the whole system is built on false doctrine. Okay, the investigative judgment of Christ, uh, that they talk about. The whole system topples once that is exposed, and they're not prepared to deal with that. But that's the, that that whole doctrine of the investigative judgment. There's no biblical base for it, and it was only. Uh, concocted after they were disappointed that the Lord did not return. They were saying the Lord will return in 1938, then 1939. He didn't return. And then a guy was walking across a, a field called Hiram. He had a, he said he had a vision where he saw that the Lord was not returning to earth, but was returning from the holy place in heaven to the holy of holies. And that's where, and what is he doing in the holy of holies today? He's investigating who is saved. Now, why does God, who knows everything from the beginning to the end, need to spend 2,000 years investigating who is saved? The system is so comical that it's not even worth, it's almost laughable to believe that they really believe that. But they do not have any place for Israel in their eschatology. They believe that God is finished with Israel, and there's no room for Israel in the eschatology. So all the promises that were made to Israel are now uh, assumed by the church. So they don't have any place for the nation Israel in the eschatology. So they will never understand the role. Uh, they will never understand the book of Revelation and what the Re- book of Revelation is about. They have to allegorize it and... Uh, uh, and and then I, I don't have time to, to go through that, but they make some silly statements about LNG White being the spirit of prophecy. Uh, all of that came from the book of Revelation because they do not understand that God has a place for the Jew. Right now he's working with the church. He's cut off the Jew and he's grafted the Gentile. But read Romans 9, 10 and 11. And Paul sets out the whole program. Romans chapter 9, Israel's um, past. Romans chapter 10, Israel's present. Romans chapter 11, Israel's future. 
Her past is all the blessings that God has given to Israel and all the privileges, the law, the covenants. They had, they had the whole works. Currently, they're in a state of blindness, chapter 10, because of their unbelief. But then Romans chapter 7, the day will come when God will remove the veil from their eyes and graft them back into God's program. That is after the church is raptured, and now God brings Israel back into his program. That's the biblical teaching, and you cannot understand the book of Revelation until you understand the role of the church and the role of the Jew. And what did he, I mean, is your reference talking about? There's no, there's no sort, there's no nation called Israel, but on Jacob <laughs> when he received the angel and said the angel left to bless him and not let you go. Yeah. And he says just like when you receive Christ, uh-huh. you have to receive the um, sinful nature until Christ comes. Yeah. Well, they have a lot so, to learn. I mean, the the, the, the problem with a cultist system is that once you believe something, it's hard to let go of it. And I think that's the biggest problem because, uh, I mean, they, they know that the investigative judgment is just bunk. No question about that. They know that. Anyone that reads the Bible for itself, they know that it's, it's bunk. But to let go of that now is to cause the whole system to, to collapse because it is based on what Ellen G. White has taught them. And Ellen G. White is the basis of Seventh-day Adventism. Remove Ellen G. White and the whole system topples. And again, I don't mm-hmm. have to, to show, I can recommend a book for you. It's called The White Lie, mm-hmm. uh, written by a ex-Seventh-day Adventist pastor who exposes the fact of the reckless plagiarism of Mrs. White when she is claiming all this time that God has spoken to her directly, angels have given her all this revelation, when it is exposed to the fact that she has copied book after book, book after book, and you can read the book for yourself, you see what she said, and you see what the guy said, and she's taken exactly from people's book. It's called stealing information. It's um, called plagiarism. I, I know about Ellen G. White because my, my, my mother, my parents were Adventists. Okay, well, you would I know, know about that. that. Yeah. Uh, and let me ask one more question. Sure. Well, what's different? What's the difference of fasting for one day and and fasting for three days? How long do you have to pray, and what time do you have to eat? Well, again, this is something personal. Uh, you have to know how long you can go through this thing. For example, there are people in our church have gone to a twenty-day fast. Uh, I haven't gone to a twenty-day fast, but you have to know how much you can handle. And I would suggest you, that if you're going to try fasting, don't try to go for 20 days or 15 days. You try a, a two-day fast uh, and see how long you can go with a two-day fast. And then if you want to increase that over time. But it's not something you can really play with, especially if you've got like, diabetes or you have some kind of an illness. You have to be very, very careful in this regard. But that's a personal matter between an individual. Nobody can set a particular time uh, how long. Um, you just have to use good judgment. I would suggest that there are some good books that you could probably go online and, and uh, Google the word fasting, and there are some good books you can get that would give you some directions and guidelines on this matter. Maybe we'll do a program at some time dealing with that matter. But I am a little bit concerned about people setting time frames and people setting uh, rigid periods of time when people fast. You read what our Lord said in the Beatitudes. He says, when you fast, don't let anybody know. Go into your closet and fast in secret with God. So I think it's a personal matter between the individual and the Lord. And I think that if you're doing it for the first time or whatever, I think it should be a gradual process. And don't try to do more than you can. Same thing with Bible study, by the way. I tell people, don't say to the Lord when you get saved, I'm going to spend 40 minutes in the Bible every day. That's not going to happen. 
start off saying, Lord, I'll spend 15 minutes with you. Be consistent with the 15 minutes. As you do that over six weeks, you can add another five minutes. But the problem of making grandiose promises is that you don't fulfill them and then the guilt sets in. And you try it for a week, it doesn't work, you give up. And then you try again another week, it doesn't work because you're trying to eat off too much one time. Start small and then as you discipline yourself in that way, add something to it. That's how you start off with these matters. And thanks so much for calling. God bless you. Have a good night. Time across Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday night is 822. Pastor, we have two other questions that have come in during that phone call. A WhatsApp question from Antigua. Good evening. Is the devil able to be as a serpent, being demoted to earthly realms as a fallen angel? Repeat that again. Does the devil. Is, is the devil able to be as a serpent, uh-huh. being demoted to earthly realms as a fallen angel? Well, what I thought thing happened in, um, in the book of Genesis chapter 3, I think that uh, Satan possessed the, okay. the serpent. Uh, I think that's exactly what happened because the curse is on the serpent and that he would walk, uh, crawl in the ground. So clearly, is he speaking to the serpent? And and by the way, uh, th- you remember also in the uh, when our Lord cast out the demons, they want to go into the pigs. They always seem to want to possess some physical physical being, whatever it is. But I think that uh, Satan uh, spoke to the serpent like a ventriloquist almost, as it were. And I think that's what fascinated Eve. Uh, by the way, the word serpent means light. I mean, uh, the, the word for serpent in the Bible is light. So clearly the serpent must have been something very brilliant or some glow was around there. I think that's what attracted her. And we also told that Satan is an angel of light. Yeah. So I think this is what attracted... Um, and there are people that believe that before the serpent was cursed, he, he didn't crawl, he was upright, right? Uh, that's what was believed. But I, uh, as far as I'm concerned, um, what happened when Satan was cast down... Uh, to, uh, to earth I think that in the Garden of Eden I believe that he took possession of the body of the serpent and spoke to the serpent to the woman and I think that's what captivated her attention uh, animals speaking it would catch your ch- as well <laughs> take Balaam with the, the ass that spoke uh, I mean any, any man going away going astray from God uh, and uh, have a you know, Im- imagine riding a horse and suddenly talks to you and say, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but um I think that's what happened, and I think Eve was captivated by by this uh, unusual specter of a serpent talking, uh, not realizing that behind the serpent was the the subtle one called the devil, the the enemy that eventually led her astray, and she led Adam astray, and today we're paying the penalty of listening to the wrong voice. If a animal can be possessed by a demon, is there danger of me as a believer? having that demon transferred to me as I interact with the animal or come in contact no, with I, I Look, um, when it comes to believers are concerned, you have to, um, two things. Nobody is can just be um, recklessly possessed by demons. There has to be some kind of passivity. And that's the problem with drugs. Okay. Right? It has to be passivity. If that were true, everybody would be possessed by a demon. But it's clear that man made man made God man, God made man to be in charge of his mind, and the problem with using illegal drugs, where you have lost your consciousness, you're no longer controlled, you open the door to demonic powers. I have no doubt in my mind that the 
increase of demonology and uh, the increase of demon possession that we begin to witness, I have no doubt in my mind it is drug-related. Uh, and I think what has happened that we become people have become passive in their mind, and this idea of higher consciousness where you don't know, have control, you open that door, demons begin to take over. You know, I look at some people who were handsome, who were had life together, were going places, and had great promise. I look at some of those people, and they've become almost indescribable. Uh, they don't have any willpower any law. They, they've sold out to, to the, the marijuana. They've sold out to other form of drugs. They're totally controlled. And their behavior in itself um, it tells you that something is wrong. Some of these people are demonized, no question about that. Uh, if you visit the psychiatric hospital and talk to some of the doctors up there uh, dealing with some of these people who are um, up there, a lot of them are not mad uh, a lot of them has been on crack, on an, and a lot of them, by the way, majority of them have been in, in, in that position because of the use of marijuana. And because of that, the, the I think that some of them are actually possessed because they've lost control of their mind. They open a door, and Satan is always looking for a door into our lives. And the best door of entrance is when we no longer have control of our mind, and he takes possession of that. So, But in terms of um, a person, a pet, or whatever being possessed, I don't think a Christian has to fear, although if I had an animal that was possessed, I'd put him out of his misery. Uh, very very quickly if I was if I sense that uh, but a Christian have to fear in that regard because unless you let an entrance into your life um, and uh, create a door into your life or a foothold into your life you don't have to fear that Satan can possess you or Satan can just come into your life great is he that is in you than he that is in the world always Amen. remember that you don't have to fear as a believer it's when believers get out of God's will and they get involved in all kinds of immorality that that creates a foothold in the flesh and Satan takes advantage of that but if you're in God's will and you're living for the Lord you need not fear anything the Lord will protect you a WhatsApp question from a listener hi good night would you say a demon can interfere with prayer? For instance, when you pray before you go to bed, no matter how hard you try to pray, you can never find the right words to say. Well, I, I don't know how to respond to that. I would say yes, for sure. Because in the book of Daniel, when Daniel had offered a prayer and he was inquiring about uh, the future, uh, we are told that an angel was sent to give an answer to Daniel and the Prince of Persia, which is a demonic spirit, held back the spirit, and Michael had to come and rescue so that the, the prayer got to Daniel, the answer got to Daniel, I think, after two weeks. So clearly, there is the angelic interference, I mean, demonic interference when it comes to the prayer part of it, so I don't, I don't question that. I think most of us, um, prayer, uh, when we think we can't concentrate or we can't think the right words, a lot of times it's just we have just exhausted, just tired and weary, and we don't give the prayer that um, precedence that it should be given, and given the priority it should be given. So the last thing we do is the, the last dregs of our lives, let's put it that way, we, we, we put a set of prayer before we go to sleep, but it's not a, a major component where we try to be the most alert when we're praying. And I think that is part of the problem more than just demonic interference. I do feel that there's interference as well uh, that can happen uh, because sometimes you're praying and the worst thought comes into your mind and you know that's not you because that's not what you came to pray about but just happened the worst thing you've ever done in your life. Here you are on the mountain praying and suddenly this this thing that you did that 
created whatever guilt in your soul just floods your mind and once again it's almost like a flashback I think that uh, the agency of Satan and, and the and, uh, evil spirits are involved in that kind of activity. So I think it can happen. But in the vast majority of cases, when we can't concentrate and we, we are not focused, it's because we're tired and we're exhausted and we haven't given the proper place of prayer, making a priority when we're at the freshest and we are in the right mind and ready to give some time to prayer. Thank you to those who have sent in questions thus far. You can call and be put live on the air, 1-268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question, 1-268-782-1454. Or you can go to Facebook Live, Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, and you can comment your question under the video feed or beside the video feed, and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy. No matter how you are joining us tonight, whether it's 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, online, or whether it's on Facebook, we are honored to have you take time out of your busy Tuesday evening in order to interact with us on the program. And time across the Eastern Caribbean is 831 on this Tuesday evening. And let me again just throw out a reminder. If you have a topic that you would like discussed, we won't even tie it back to you. We won't announce that you suggested it. But we are wanting this program to be as practical as possible. And one of the best ways to do that is to discuss what is heavy on your mind and on your heart. So we are open to suggestions for future topics here on That's Truth. Another WhatsApp question that has just come in, Pastor. Good evening. Good program as always. Question number one. Is the Antichrist one person or more than one person? Well, look, uh, John tells us in the book of First John that many Antichrists gone out into the world. So clearly, uh, just that you have a foreshadowment of Christ, and there are many examples in the Old Testament that pointed to Christ as the Messiah that would come. Uh, there's no doubt that there are... Um, uh, persons in the in the uh, past that uh, pointed towards the, for example, I think Hitler is a good example of an antichrist. What he's going to do, I think Mussolini uh, was one as well. But there is, as the Bible talks about it, the antichrist is coming. A person is coming. Uh, we have foretold that in the book of Daniel. We've also given great details in the book of, of uh, Revelation. So the antichrist, the uh, person, the antichrist is going to come, just like an, a false prophet is going to arise in the end time. You read uh, Revelation 13, Revelation chapter 17. Both of these are going to work in conjunction uh, to mesmerize the world so that uh, mankind begins to worship uh, Satan. But he is going to be a person, no question about that, and he's uh, coming out of the old Roman Empire. The Bible talks about it in Daniel chapter 9, I think it's verse 27. So yes, he is an individual, but there are uh, types of him that, uh, for example, again, Nebuchadnezzar with the image that was built, he is a type of the, the Antichrist uh, as well. So there are types. Uh, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, who um, during the people heard about the Maccabean War, he's a guy that uh, run the Seleucid Empire, one of the four kingdoms of the Greek when it was split up. He's a guy that took the uh, image of Zeus and put it in the temple and then sacrificed a sow in the Jewish temple. Um, he's called Antiochus. He was a type of the Antichrist because he desecrated the temple and the book of Matthew chapter 4, the day of desecration coming again. So what he did, 
then historically will be enacted again when the Antichrist comes because the Bible says he'll take away the sacrifice. So there are types of the Antichrist, but the Bible does teach that uh, the Antichrist is coming who will be a person. And another question from this listener in Antigua. If absent from the body is present with the Lord, providing you are a Christian, why does the Bible say the dead in Christ shall rise? It's the body that rises. That's the point that people make. The body sleeps in the grave. The spirit goes to be with the Lord. And don't forget, humanity is, is not humanity without a body and a spirit. And that's why when our Lord, that's why the Bible says he brings back, read Thessalonians chapter 4, you'll find that it talks about he, uh, we come back with the Lord. Who's coming out with the Lord? Those who are with him. But it's a spirit that's coming back, okay? Because the body has to be raised and reunited with the body. That's the biblical doctrine. In other words, God did not only save the, the soul and the spirit, he saves the body. The body is going to be redeemed. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8, verse, uh, Romans chapter 8 as well, that the body is going, going to be redeemed. It's not redeemed now because it's asleep in the grave, but one day it's going to be resurrected. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.35 on this Tuesday evening. Pastor, you were discussing uh, Old Testament titles given to and descriptions given to demons. You talked about Psalms and a couple of other references. Yeah, we talk about the another one that you find in the passage, Isaiah chapter 34, verse 14. And this is a word that is used, the word is lilit, L-I-L-I-T in Hebrew, and it has to do with a demon of the night. Uh, basically, it's a night demon. Uh, sometimes right. referred to as a satyr. But that's what it is, uh, the night demon. Isaiah thirty-four fourteen. Thirty-four fourteen. The wild beast of the desert shall also meet with the wild beast of the island, and the satire. That word. That's the word there. The, the word is Lilith. That's the demon of the night. Okay. Uh-huh. And then there's another. Uh, again, uh, another terms that are used in the Old Testament. Um, I think we're familiar with that. First Samuel chapter sixteen and uh, fourteen to sixteen and twenty-three to twenty. This is an evil spirit. You remember when Saul had disobeyed the Lord, and because of his disobedience, the Lord allowed an evil spirit. Again, that's the demonic spirit was permitted of the Lord to torment uh, uh, Saul. Those of you who believe that Saul was um, uh, a believer, a genuine believer, this gives you an idea of what could happen in a case of a believer who gets out of God's will, willfully, arrogantly disobeys God, chooses his own path. Uh, God can withhold his protection and allow uh, this demonic spirit to, to torment Saul. And we all know what happened in the case of Saul. So that's another biblical term that's used, evil spirit. In First Kings uh, 22, verse 21 to 22, another expression that's used to de- de- describe these demonic spirits is a lion spirit. And uh, this is where the Lord again permitted uh, evil spirit to go and lie to Ahab uh, about victory and tell him, yeah, you go ahead, you go ahead, you know, because the prophet had told him, if you go into this war, you're going to lose this war. But uh, he didn't want to hear that. So again, uh, you know, the Lord allows this spirit to go and deceive him, to let him go ahead. And he, of course, he ends up... uh, paying the price for his disobedience. But that's the term used in 1 Kings chapter 22, uh, 21. It's called a lion spirit. That would be a demonic spirit. And then another term that's used in the Old Testament for these demonic is Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 11, uh, Isaiah 8, 19, and Isaiah 19, 3. The term that is used there is a familiar spirit. 
familiar spirit. These are demons that are involved with witches and spiritualists who speak through these these uh, these people who are involved in witchcraft and involved in spiritualism. Uh, they, they are mediums or what you call wizards, um, but that's the f- familiar spirit that is used. And what happens many times, they say they call up the dead. They didn't call up the dead. They call up a spirit that imitates the dead, which becomes a familiar spirit. So that's the expression that's used in the Old Testament. So people who are involved in necromancy believe that they're speaking to the little dead. They're not speaking to the little dead. You're speaking to a, a, a demon that has imitated the dead. So do you believe that Saul saw Samuel? I believe that the Lord, in that case, was a very unique case. I do believe the Lord permitted that to happen. Okay. Right? There are some people who said it didn't happen, but if you read it very carefully, uh, this was something. As a matter of fact, I think not only that, the woman was shocked yeah. that Samuel appeared to her, right? Uh, but I think that was a, a unique exception where uh, the Lord was sending a message directly to Saul that he's going to die. And Samuel, uh, the prophet, was allowed to go back to him and, and give a word to him. But the exception, that's an exception rather than the rule. So I do believe that that actually occurred. Yeah, uh, and then the other one that is um, Isaiah sixty-five eleven. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But the, the, the word that's used there is Gad, and that's a spirit of fortune, an evil spirit of fortune. You know, people are always involved in fortune telling and stuff like that. That's a, a spirit. Um do you think that a Christian should ever be involved in fortune-telling if you are concerned about the future? Maybe you've been diagnosed with cancer, and there's a fortune-teller that doesn't claim to be involved in spiritism. Is it okay for me to go consult with them? Christians should never be engaged in this kind of activity. Uh, one cannot read the book of uh, Leviticus, the book of Deuteronomy. The Lord abominates any attempt to delve into the future by occult means. And uh, whether the person is practicing uh, divination or a person is, is a witch or somebody who is who got ESP and really believers should never ever try to delve into that part of it and get involved in that. As a matter of fact, people get trapped that way, Nathan. Uh, people who have lost their loved ones, for example, and maybe they've felt that they mistreated a loved one or you know they weren't there when they died, whatever it is. Uh, somehow they want to get in contact and say the final words to the loved one. And that's where they get mixed up with uh, necromancy, to get somebody to call up, you know, maybe to speak to them and apologize to them and so on. And then they become addicted because they believe that is true and they want to, and it keeps going on again. It's like like anything you taste, that you, you get something that seems to be sweet, you want to go after it. So when you dilly-dally in these areas, um, you can get trapped in them and get involved in other things. Uh, and don't forget, the, it is possible that the person might be able to tell you that it comes true, but the enemy wants to trap you, so you keep going back and keep going back. But ultimately, he will deceive you. But the New Testament and the Old Testament is very, very clear. The Christian should never get involved in any kind of divination, any kind of witchcraft, any kind of fortune-telling, any kind of dealing with those kind of matters. Those things are abominated in God's Word and contrary to Scripture. We have 20 minutes left in the program. Still enough time for you to call or send in your question. If you'd like to be put live on the air, you can call one 462 7420 If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to one two six eight seven eight two one four five four. Yeah, another word that is found in the Old Testament that deal with this demonic powers is the word Elalim, E L I L I M, is found in Psalm ninety six five. 
and it refers to, it's translated in the King James as idols, but really it's referring to the demons behind idolatry. That's what it's referring to. You remember Paul said that behind idolatry are demonic powers? Right. Any place you find idolatry, there is the activity of Satan involved in it. So when you go to like the jungles of South America, or you go to certain parts of Africa still, or maybe even up the, in the North American Indians, where you, ever you find idolatry involved, there are demonic powers behind that idolatry, perpetuating that idolatry. And that's the word that is used, Elohim. They are idolatrous spirits that lead people into idolatry. Now, when you say idolatry there, do you just mean where there's an actual like wood or stone idol, or are you referring also to like if I make my smartphone an idol, putting it before God? No, I'm, I'm actually talking about people worshipping okay. uh, an idol, worshipping uh, an object. I'm not actually talking about that kind of a thing. I mean, your cell phone can become your idol in the fact that it takes up all your time you don't have time for God and it displaces God in your life in a sense that's an idol but you're not really bowing down to it you're not praying to it you're not worshipping so it's something completely distinctly different are there any other words from the Old Testament well the other word is Psalm 91 verse 6 and that word is the word is uh, Ketev K-E-T-E-V and that is the demon of destruction uh, the word destruction is used but that's what it is the demon that and remember that we're told that Satan cometh but to do what to steal and to kill and to what destroy. destroy the ultimate goal is to destroy humanity and there are demons who are bent on human destruction so there are about 10 different words in the New Test in the Old Testament that deals with this matter so the, the New Testament Old Testament while it doesn't um, is not mentioned as frequently as you find in the New Testament when Christ came on the scene uh, it was a doctrine and a teaching that was clearly taught in the Old Testament uh, under different titles different words now when we come to the oh, go ahead Pastor we have a caller uh, Nathan calling from Nevis Nathan thank you for calling and go ahead with your question quickly please Yes, good evening. Good evening, Nathan. How are you doing? I'm not doing too badly. I'm here listening to the program. Okay. We're glad you're listening. Thanks Excited. for coming. Okay. How can I help um, you? I would like you to explain Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30 for me, please. Okay. Uh, Let me read that real quickly. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and that not the whole body should be cast into hell. And verse 30 says, And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off, cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that the whole body should be cast into hell. Yeah. Look, I, this is not talking about human mutilation. Um, you know, some people take that very literally, that you should do that, etc., etc. But what our Lord is talking about is to deal with your body parts, your members, drastically. Right? If your eyes are problem, you can't see a woman except you want to get under a skirt. Deal with that drastically. It doesn't mean you pop out your eye. But you must be prepared to deal with it very, very drastically. You know, Job said, I'd made a covenant with my eye. I would not look upon a maiden. So our Lord is asking, uh, you know, the kingdom, you know, the question was asked, are there few that will enter the kingdom? And he said, yes. He said, few are going to enter the kingdom, many on the way to destruction. And he said, strive. In other words, make every effort humanly possible 
to be in a position where you can enter the kingdom. And this is what he's basically saying here again. He's not asking people to mutilate, cut off their hand, etc., etc., although some people have taken that seriously. As a matter of fact, uh, some people actually literally uh, in church history um, castrated themselves, literally castrated themselves because they took this very literally. But our Lord is saying that we've got to deal with the, our body parts and deal with our, our parts of our that we can't we we see the lost control over. Deal with them in a very very drastic manner. But He's not suggesting uh, literally, uh, you know, cutting off your hand and cutting out your eye. But uh, deal with it very very severely. Whatever is required to bring that body part under control, handle it. However, I will tell you this. I mean, from a, a, a pastor's point of view. Um, uh, <laughs> I miss my scene rather strange, but if a person really uh, can't deal with any other matter, that's a matter for them. But I don't think they must take this verse of Scripture to use it in a little, literal sense. But I can see people um, t- taking this to the extent where doing some bodily harm to themselves, and that's the danger. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so there are some scripture more or less like it in chapter 18 of Matthew uh-huh. and also uh-huh. in Mark chapter 9. Uh-huh. Now, I read this and I um, thought, now we say it's profitable for you that one of your members, members should yeah. perish. Yeah. Then the whole body should be cast into hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, now, uh, yes, go ahead. I'm listening, sir. Go ahead. The, the body, uh-huh. it, 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 uh, it's the body, the body, the body being cast into hell. Uh-huh. What is it to those who say there's no hell? Well, again, you know, look, you and I know that the Bible is very, very clear on this matter. So you and I don't have to debate about that. The problem with people is that they come to Scripture with a presupposition. They say, this happened with the Jehovah's Witness. This happened with the Seventh-day Adventists. The only reason you have the Jehovah's Witness today is because Russell had a problem with hell. He did not believe in hell. So he had to, he came up with interpretations that would go along with his thinking. He wasn't prepared to accept the solid biblical teaching. Same thing with the Adventists. They're not prepared to take the clear biblical doctrine that there is a literal hell, and therefore they take their presuppositions to the Bible, and they try to interpret the Bible in line with their presuppositions. But any honest person reading the Bible uh, must come to one conclusion. There is a literal hell to be avoided. So, and by the way, you know, our Lord told the parable of the uh, the rich man and the divies. You remember what he told when the guy said, you know, Lord, if you would send somebody from the grave, they would listen to me. You remember what he told them? Yeah. If they do not believe Moses and the prophets, they would not believe though one was raised from the dead. In other words, if you don't believe the word of God, there's no other means that you can come to the truth apart from God's word. No, no person rising from the dead telling you that there's a real hell will even make you believe. If you can't believe God's word, not even their word would persuade you. That gives you the idea of the power of the word. Because remember this, the word of God is the sword of the spirit. It's the sword of the spirit is the word that the, the spirit uses to bring conviction in our lives. So people who are not prepared to listen to the clear teaching of Scripture, you will not be able to persuade them. I will not be able to persuade them. The Holy Spirit needs a tool to use, and that's the Word. Without the Word, 
we can never cut our hearts. And people who are not prepared to listen to the word will go away in their sins, die in their sins, and suffer the consequences of ignoring scripture. And uh, the the matter of hell. Yes, sir. It shows then that the grave is not the end. Correct. Yeah, correct. The grave is not the, the. The Bible tells us very clearly: it's a point of the man wants to die, but after this, the judgment. The judgment. Right. And then when you read the I book, I mentioned that to a Jehovah Witness. When I came to the judgment, he said the resurrection. Yeah. <laughs> Ice After death, the, the resurrection. Right. Because the Jehovah's system is built on false basis. And when you build something on a false foundation, the superstructure is also false. So if you don't have the foundation correct, no matter how the superstructure looks, the whole thing is going to collapse one of these days. And they have started on a false premise, built a whole system on that false premise, and one day it's going to topple. And regrettably, it'll be too late for them because they're not prepared to take the Word of God for what... You know what they've actually done themselves? They've created a new Bible called the, the Watchtower Bible. New World Translation. New World. Yeah, I and they have... have a new Bible now, yeah, you know. Yeah, and they have twisted... Twisted uh, the scripture to suit their theology. The New World Translation, but I think they have changed that uh-huh. and written a new one. Okay, the I don't know the, the the title of it. Yeah, but it's more in line with the language. C- correct. So, so wh- how can you have people so dishonest that rather than allow a international translation where you have people who are objective, people who are scholars. And by the way, when they came out with the New World Translation, they have no Greek scholars, they don't have no Hebrew scholars as well. And uh, it was just, it was just, an, uh, if you read uh, any of the um, the grammarians and people who are in the theological seminaries that have done Greek and Hebrew, they'll tell you that it's the most atrocious translation ever translated. Distorted, mm-hmm. twisted. They add scripture to, to things. And, and God warns, you don't add to God's word. You don't take away from God's word. God puts a curse on anybody that takes away from his word or add to his words. And that's exactly what they've done. Especially the book of Revelation. Co- correct, correct, correct. But they are misleading so many people because so many people believe what they're teaching and that's the that's the that's the sad tragedy about uh, cultic doctrine and you know the problem is my brother as well that people today are not reading the bible so those who come under the influence of these uh, cultic groups don't have answers because they don't have any bible foundation and therefore they don't know how to respond and because they use the language of the bible and maybe quote scripture and use verses people assume that this is exactly what the bible teaches uh, it's, it's one of the great uh, curses of our time that we're living in a time of biblical illiteracy uh, where people don't have a grasp of biblical truth and able to respond to cultic teachings and therefore they're easily misled. It's a great tragedy. One more thing. Yes, sir. Um, you spoke tonight of uh, spirits having sex, uh, trying to have sex yes. with women. Yes. I was told of a situation in Puerto Rico uh-huh. where a woman spirit actually fought with her uh-huh. to have sex. Yeah. And after they couldn't get her to get herself in the position for them uh-huh. to have sex with her, uh-huh. they sit down on her. Yeah. Actually sit down on her body. Yeah. yeah. I don't I don't doubt that. I as I tell you, I know person and again i'm not trying to mislead anybody i'm not trying to lie to anybody 
I know personally that that is true, that this is actually uh, attempted, has been made in those areas. And so I have no doubt about that. I, I mean, before I had uh, knowledge of these things and uh, didn't do an investigation and, and without having a certain encounters, I had certain reservations when I heard certain, but I'm telling you that these things actually do happen. And uh, so it's a reality. And that's why, again, they try to possess human beings. They want to have the same experience. And they are evil and wicked. Uh, and that's why the Bible uses the term uh, evil spirit and wicked spirit because mm. they're morally corrupt and they want to corrupt humanity. And that's why when you find idolatry, uh, you'll always find gross immorality involved in idolatry because it's part of the demonic uh, enterprise of corrupting the human race and moving away from God. I don't have to tell you how powerful the, the, uh, the sex is. And when you get people involved in these type of things, it's hard for them to let go because the flesh uh, dominates their lives. But it happens. Mm -hmm. I, I, I know it happens. Okay. Thanks for calling. God bless you. Thank you very much for the call, Nathan. Have a blessed night. Uh, Pastor Murphy, message that's come in via Facebook. Good evening. Can you please explain if any evil spirit or deceit is involved between these two prophets in 1 Kings chapter 13, verses 16 to 25? Let me read, I'll, uh, particularly verse 16. I'll start with 16. And he said, I may not, uh, that's First Kings 13, 16 to 25. And he said, I may not return with thee, nor go in with thee. Neither will I eat bread, nor drink water with thee in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, thou shalt eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again to go by the way thou camest. And he said unto them, I am a prophet, also as thou art. And an angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back to, with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied unto him. You want me to continue, Pastor? Or you no, have I, I just, um, what was the question? I tried to. Yeah, the question is, can you please explain if any evil spirit or deceit is involved between these two prophets? Yeah, but I clear, I mean, I, I would like to deal with it a little bit more next week, right? Okay, but, yeah. But clearly there's a, a deceitful spirit misled, misled, misleading this guy because if I remember the story correctly, the Lord had told him, uh, don't turn back, don't take any water, don't take any bread. And then a, a prophet went and told him the exact thing, the Lord. Now, any man should have been aware. If a, if a guy comes to you and says, the Lord just told you, don't don't turn back, don't drink water, don't eat any particular bread, uh, you go straight. And then somebody suddenly comes to you and tells you the same three things God tells you not to do. I mean, a red flag should go up. I mean, clearly a red flag should go up. But clearly this guy didn't listen. Uh, but... I, I want to deal with that n next week as well because it's it's, it's fairly long to, to deal with it because there's an interaction there between what, what God was doing in relation to this prophet. Pastor, we only have two minutes left in the program, but we have a caller from All Saints Antigua. Thank you for calling and go with your question very quickly, please. Okay, good evening. Good evening. Pastor Murphy, yes. what would you say to a person who professes Christianity for a long time? They testify of their love for God and the rest of it. And when they're dying, they're all sort of evil things coming from them. Yeah, saying things that they did and, you know, yeah. and real wicked things. Would yeah. you say that they are hellbound or heaven? Well, that, I can't answer that question. I would just say this, that I, I do know that uh, the last 
fear that all of us are going to have is that final moment. Uh, people become totally terrified. There are pastors for years who have been preaching and who in that moment of death uh, is so terrified by death that the only thing they hold on to in their minds is the fact that they're under the blood of Jesus Christ. But the enemy torments you in ways that you would never think. I remember when my wife's daughter died, she was only 39 years old, died of leukemia. Uh, I remember in her last moments, and while she was she spent a few days, uh, she was dying. Uh, many, many times she was terrified, and my wife had to console her by bringing her back to the gospel, her profession of faith. Um, so it's very hard to say uh, what's happening at that juncture in time. If she is a genuine believer, um, in spite of the things she was saying, uh, I she's under the blood. But the enemy will, in that last moment, mm -hmm. definitely will, will haunt you. He will haunt me. Uh, you know, I hear people saying that they don't want to, they, they, they don't mind dying. I do mind dying. I don't want to die, to be honest with you. I don't mind all this talk, right? I was meant to live. I feel in my nature. That's why I think human beings know that we are supposed to live forever. We were designed to, to die. Right. So I have no pleasure in death. I would like to live another hundred years if I could, yeah. right? But the reality is not going to happen. But I have no doubt that when that day comes, that I will face the enemy in ways I've never faced it before. Okay. And we will need God's grace. And the only thing to hold on in that day mm -hmm. is to keep cleaning the blood and the fact that we put our faith and trust in Christ. The enemy can't defeat that. Okay. God bless you. Thank God you. God bless you too. Thank and I would love to see you in person. We would love for you to visit Grace Baptist Church on Roan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Sunday morning service is at, uh, Sunday school is at 9 a.m. Sunday morning service is at 10 a.m. And we also have a service on Thursday night at 7 p.m. Thank you for joining us for tonight's episode. And be sure you join us next week as we answer these questions and also pick up with the topic of demonology. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.